Bless the Lord tonight. Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah and the uh, 10th chapter of Zechariah. And I want to um, finish, I think, uh, thought something that the Lord had put on my heart uh, and I've been speaking on for, for man, I started probably a couple of months ago now. We had all kinds of stuff with camp and uh, different breaks. So I, I have not been able to get to this last portion and we're glad to have Brother Nathan Dennis here tonight. That, that was part of it. That was part of the, of the series that I'm preaching. We're so glad to have Brother Nathan. Um, I like I heard a preacher say, get your Bibles out and turn to anywhere. It's all good. <laughs> and I would take it one step further. Turn anywhere. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. I, this verse in Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 4 has been in my heart. Something that... Um, I had never really heard, heard preached on before, but the Lord has really just put in my heart just to um, find Christ in the Old Testament. I think he's there. I think it's visible. It's not all above where it's surface level. Some of it we have to dig a little bit to find. But I think this is important imagery. I think it's important to help us understand the different characteristics of who our Lord is and and so tonight we're going to cover one that may not be real popular in our current culture, but we're going to look at it anyway. So uh, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 4 says, From him comes the cornerstone, and from him the nail, from him the battle bow, and from him every ruler together. Lord, we ask you tonight, God, that you would help me to deliver what you have given me that I would be able to encourage and strengthen and challenge us, God, to take up your word, God, to live it and to enact it in our lives, Jesus. And we give you all the glory and everybody say amen. amen. One thing that strikes me uh, about this verse is the very building nature of the verse itself. Talked about, obviously, the first thing he says is the corner or the cornerstone. And we, we clearly identify with the cornerstone. This imagery is used throughout the New and Old Testament, and so it's easy for us. But Jesus said the wise man builds his house upon a rock. If you don't have a house, what does it matter about the cornerstone? Right? If you're not going to build, then a cornerstone really doesn't mean anything to you. The value of the cornerstone is the fact that there is a building being erected on the cornerstone. So it talks about him first being the corner. Second, being the nail, which we explored some different perspectives that people have on that, whether it's the, the, the tent peg upon which everything else was held, or whether it was the nail in the holy place that's spoken about in the prophets, um, or whether it's that nail in the member that everything is held together by, or is it the nail that's placed in the house because they didn't really have furniture that they put the valuable things on, regardless, we see that he is the nail. But now if you think about it in the terms of building, you have a foundation, you have the corner, and then the building process of this verse. Next, we have the nail, which is going to hold the building together that's on the corner. Everybody following me? And then lastly, we're going we're gonna to see this description of him as being the battle bow. That's a, that's a powerful word. If you think about a battle bow, this imagery is not going to be popular in our culture. At the very mention of a gun and a knife throws the liberal into a hissy fit. And yet, this is the description of the Lord... As the, at this time when it's spoken, the battle bow would have been the most advanced military weapon of its age. You're talking military grade assault weapon. Come on, somebody say amen. How many of you like that picture of the Lord, right? We love, uh, Nathan sent me a picture this week of the little hippie that they found in their church. Dad calls him the hippie with the goat a lot of times. The soft, effeminate looking Jesus. That's not our Lord. That's not the guy that we serve. And so this, this picture that we have here is a God of war. I didn't get very many amens. I knew that was going to hit a little funny because we want to think of him as peace. And I was thinking about that verse today because Pastor read it. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And it talks about his peace. 
but the peace is the result of conquest. It's not the result of passivity. The peace that God gives is because he won. It's not because he quit. The peace that's available to you as a Christian is because you are victors in Christ, not because you have stopped fighting the battle. So this imagery that we see here of the battle bow, I want you to think about the most advanced military weapon of Isaiah's time, and this is how he describes, this is the image that he sees when he talks about our Lord. And what makes me think about that building process that's so beautiful is he starts with the foundation, he then talks about the house, but if you're going to have a house, you better be able to defend it. Even Jesus said, if you knew the hour the strong man was coming, you'd have been ready. We don't sit back in passivity and say, whatever happens, happens. Now, I, listen, I, I, you're, don't misunderstand. And I know all of you are pretty much home folk here, so you're going to understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about going out and physically fighting. I'm not talking about assaulting people who have different opinions. I'm not talking about blowing up abortion clinics. Absolutely not. Not at all what God's talking about here. But the idea of an advancing kingdom, a kingdom that is not passive and a kingdom that is aggressive about its reign and its rule, I'm telling you, God's not going to yield to Satan in this age. He's not going to back down because it's not popular. And so this idea is that if God, and now I'm going to speak to some men here tonight, you know I love to do this and I have to go there tonight. But if God is going to give you a foundation and a house, then you as men better be equipped to defend it. And you're not going to defend it hiding behind the, the apron of your wife. You're going to defend it with the battle bow. You're going to be ready to take an assault that's coming at you and not just shield your family, but to uh, attack that which is coming at your family. I think this is the nature of the man of God. You can talk about all kinds of description of godly men, and I like to do that. I've been meeting with the young guys, the under 30 age, having manly Mondays, just talking about what it means to be a man in, in, of God. And we could talk about all these attributes, but I'm going to tell you, if you want to be a godly man, you're going to have to be a man who's not afraid to fight. Again, take all this type, and we got to put it into the spiritual. We'll get there. But, but God describes himself as a warrior. How many know that? God describes himself as a warrior. The song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3 says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 13, this this passage of scripture is pretty powerful. I want to read it to you in the New Living because it even gives a little better description of what these words actually mean. But the Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise a battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. More than 300 times in the Old Testament, some variation of Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of heaven's armies is used. The Lord of hosts, we see that all throughout the scripture in the King James. But it literally is speaking of the God who is the leader of the armies of heaven. That's a, that's a very unique description not just the angels, not just the idea of, of, of winged creatures, but those who are fighting in a battle. That's what an army is. An army are those who are ready to fight and who advance the territory of their kingdom. That's what it's about. This passage in Isaiah chapter 63 came to my mind as I began to think about this. Some of you will recognize it. I want to read the first three verses. Can you pull that up there? Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3. It's not popular to view God in this way, but it's truth. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength. 
I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse 1 starts with the question, who is the one that's coming? But then it answers the question immediately, the one who is righteous and the Savior. This is who this chapter is speaking of. Look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Again, verse 2 starts with the question of his garments and why is it red? And, and Isaiah looks and he says it, it looks like somebody who's been walking on the grapes there and smashing them and the bottom of his garments all covered in red. And he says, why is this? But verse 3, we find the answer. I have treading the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. The blood, their blood, is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all of my robes. This is not a passive God. Now how God secures victory... And what God's victories look like may not be what you expect, but we're not talking about a God who is passive. We're not talking about a God who is reactionary. We are talking about a God who has it all planned out and He is working this thing out for you to be victorious. Amen? I love verse 4 and verse 5. For the day of the vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none to help. And I wondered that there would be none to uphold. Therefore, my own arm hath brought salvation for me. And my own fury has sustained it. Look at verse 6. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger. And have made them drunk in my fury. And I brought down their strength to the earth. How do you see God? How do you perceive what God's doing? Do you, do you think God is reevaluating his things based upon what popular culture says? Do you think God is concerned about the thoughts of man and how man thinks about him? I, I don't think he is. I think God is who he is and he says, I don't really care what you think about who I am. That's how I see God. I think it's really important that we understand that. Look at, look at this in I'm sorry, in the second chapter of Colossians, flip there really quickly, because Paul picks up on this same imagery, and I love it, and, and you've read it many times, but I, I believe maybe you can see it just a little different. Paul attaches this exact same imagery in the second chapter in the 13th verse of Colossians. He says, and you being dead in trespasses, you being dead in trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and he has nailed it to the cross. And listen to this. And having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. How do you see the cross? Because how Jesus sees the cross is a lot different than how you see the cross. It's a lot different than how the world perceives the cross. Yes, he was the suffering servant. Yes, he was abused. He was stricken. He was beat down. But the crucifixion is not a loss. Jesus sees the crucifixion as a win. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. Because it's a win for him. He stripped all authority from the Jewish rulers. He stripped the power of death and hell. He stripped it all. He took it all away. And the one who was despised and rejected, rejected them. And the one who was beaten, beat them. And the one who was esteemed stricken, smitten of God, struck one final blow to the power of sin. And the one who bore our shame shamed them publicly, Colossians says. 
He put them to open shame with his cross. They looked and laughed and mocked him and said, He hangs naked on the tree. Who He can't even save himself. But Jesus said, Through this, I'm going to win. And not only can I save myself, but I choose not to. But I'm going to save the whole world. Amen. Triumphing over them. Boasting. I know we can get proud and pride comes before the fall, but our pride and our our boasting is not in our strength. I want to encourage you tonight to be proud and to boast in the strength of the Lord. Not in your own might, not in your own power, not in your own ability, but do not be afraid to boast about what God can do. Don't ever be afraid to give Him the honor that He is worthy of. It's something that we should do. I know it will not sit well with the weak need and the whimpering, the woke, the passive, and the panty-wasted. But our God is a warrior, and He's never lost a battle, and He's not going to start now. And let me say this, the kingdom of God is full of warriors. Full. Full. There's not anybody who's a part of the kingdom of God that is not going to fight to get in it. Now, I'm going to get there in a minute out of of the the scripture concerning uh, John found in Matthew 11. I'll get there in a minute. But you're going to be a warrior if you're going to be a part. You're going to fight every temptation of the flesh. You're going to fight to keep yourself under. You're going to fight to put yourself on that altar and sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice daily. It's going to be a battle. It's never going to be easy. You're not going to accidentally serve the Lord. But it's going to be with, I think it was um, Tozer said the life of Christ, maybe it was Bonhoeffer, is nothing if not a war with every available weapon against the flesh. It is a battle. It is a warfare that we have entered into. And I'm not talking about taking up physical arms against tyranny. I hate what's going on in our, in our country right now. All of us do. How many of you feel just a little unsettled in your spirit right now? Just, it's just hard to not feel that way because we look and we see things that we thought were so cemented and so permanent are now like totally in a state of flux. Things that I thought, I don't have to worry about that. Now I really can't draw any strength from it. But is it not going to push me to the one who never loses? Will that understanding not drive me to my knees and say, God, I don't understand this and I'm feeling really vulnerable and, and I don't know how to defend my position here. But you are the battle bow. You are the offensive weapon and you will stand with me and we're going to fight with you, Lord. We're going to keep the ground. We're going to maintain the position. We're going to earnestly contend for the faith. Men of God have always been warriors. Men who are not afraid to fight. I'm going to give you ten names. Ten Bible names. And I'm going to almost guarantee you have no idea who they are. Now if you do, you are exceptionally a smart Bible student. So I'm going to give you ten. Maybe some of you, I'll put, put pastors to the test here. Let me, let me read them off to you. Shemua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Amiel, Gadi, Sether, Nabi, and Guel. Anybody know who they are? I didn't think so. Now let me add two more names with them, and all of a sudden you're going to understand who they are. Joshua and Caleb. Now, I'm going to tell you why you don't know the first ten names. Because twelve men went into the land that God told them to possess. They went in to look and observe what was there. Ten of them walked out and said, we cannot. Two of them walked out and said, if God gives us the victory, I don't care what it looks like. In our eyes, we're going to take the land. And ten of them died in the wilderness And two of them walked into promise. God's men have always been warriors. Always. Now it was a physical fight for Joshua and Caleb. 
I love the, the image of Caleb at 80 years old. I can see him in my mind. I know some of you probably can too. Where he says, this is my mountain. I've been waiting for it for a long time. I'm 80 years old. And come on, bring on the fight. I can just see him. He's got his bow. He's got his arrows. He's ready to fight. Caleb and Joshua are fighters. Joshua's not afraid. He's not a, they're not intimidated. The other 10 walk out and say, man, we are grasshoppers. We're just a small portion of the population. Man, all the tides turned against us. Culture is telling us we cannot win. Culture is telling us you might as well stop fighting. And if you dare speak up against culture, you're going to be pushed under. You're going to be beaten. And your family's going to be destroyed. But men of God... And women of God who are warriors are going to stand up and they're going to say, you know what, I don't understand any of this, but I know the end of the book and God wins. Satan doesn't win, God wins. He wins every time. Every time. You may need to tell yourself a few times in the next few months, he's never lost a battle. He's never lost a battle. Caleb, Joshua, Moses, Gideon, Samson, David, Jephthah, Nehemiah, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They are all men who are not, not going out and assaulting the innocent, but are ready to take vengeance upon the wicked. They are refusing to back down. That picture of Nehemiah in my mind just stands out that he is there and he is building up the walls that have been destroyed. He's trying to rebuild and restructure the wall and they're coming and they're attacking and they're attacking and they're attacking. And finally, he basically says, listen, I can't get anything done on this wall if I'm constantly fighting. And if I'm fighting and we don't get the walls built, then it isn't going to matter. So with a trowel in one hand, putting up block and a sword in the other, that's the picture that we get of Nehemiah. He is a warrior. He's got a warrior's heart. He's out there. There's only a few guys with him. There's only just a few of them. They, they don't even have enough for one guy to be building and the other guys to be guarding. There's just a few of them. But he thought the fight was worth it. He thought it was important. I won't make you turn there, but if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 54, something happens that is interesting to me. Because I do think that we need to understand that we are fighters and we should not be afraid to take on that, that image in the eyes of the world. So David has just defeated Goliath and he does two things. He severs his head to make sure he's dead, but then he takes the head to Jerusalem. But if you read the scripture... It says that the other thing he does is he takes Goliath's armor and his weapons and he takes them to his own tent. I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think that he wanted to be reminded daily that God gives victory. I think he's living in a very natural spiritual experience. You know, he, they're, they're fighting physical battles. We're fighting spiritual battles. The weapons of our warfare. Not being carnal. But David says, I want to be reminded daily that God gives victory in the face of what seems to be insurmountable odds. But more than that, God gives victory when I am going to answer what he tells me to do. When I'm going to respond and defend his name. And I'm going to defend his character. And I'm going to stand upon his truth. Then I can look at that armor on the wall. And I can say, you know what? God gives victory. But I, I think there's something else because I'm a man. I think he hung them on the wall so that everybody that came over to his tent could see. I'm a fighter. You know how I know that? Because a lot of you got deer heads hanging on your wall. And fish hanging on your wall. And if I ever stared down a grizzly bear... And one, he'd be hanging on my wall. Why? 
it is all right for you to say, listen, look on the wall. I'm not afraid to fight. And, and le- I don't know what that means. I, I just felt that so strong this week. We don't, we, we look and we, we see this image of, of we need to be cowardly and we've got to be meek and we've got to be humble. And yes, all that is true in our flesh. It's true, but we can boast in the work of the Lord. And I don't think it's wrong to have a few guns hanging on your wall and saying, listen, devil, you come in here and I'm ready to fight right now. I don't have to think about this. Spiritually, it's okay to have some trophies on your wall that define that you are a fighter. You know what David's problem ultimately became? David was not afraid to fight giants. David was not afraid to defend the flock against beasts. He went out every year. He would go out with his men and they would fight and take ground. He ran and, and, and had to you know, fend for his life for 15 years. But somewhere along the line, this verse has always spoken to my heart. It speaks about position. It speaks about your purpose. It speaks about what God made you to be. But the verse says, at the times when kings go out to war, David was sitting on his rooftop. David was a warrior, but he had lost the warrior's mentality. David was a warrior, but instead of activating what God had placed in his life and functioning as God had defined him to function, he is sitting around in his ease because now he doesn't have to fight. And I wonder if that's not the problem sometimes with us. We have so much luxury. We have so much wealth. So much prosperity. At the time that David should have been out fighting with his men, defending the kingdom of God, he sat and because of that, he looks from his rooftop, sitting in his leisure, he looks across and he sees Bathsheba. And all that transpires, he becomes an adulterer and a murderer. And all of that transpires because... He is not where God placed him to be. David is a man who's got weapons in his hand. In fact, when he says, I want to build the temple, God says, no, you're a a bloody man. You can't build my holy things. Now, that's the natural, I know. But listen, David's heart, God raised him up because he was not afraid of a fight. God raised him up because he was willing to go out and stand in the face of what seemed to be difficult odds. That's why God used him. And yet, what defined him now no longer defines him. We're to be the answer to the world. And it's going to come at a cost. I don't know what that cost looks like. I don't know what it all represents. But I want to encourage you. Now, you might have them. I I lock mine up because I don't want them to get stolen if somebody breaks in my house. But it's okay to have a few weapons on the wall. Spiritually, it's okay to have a few weapons on the wall. (laughs) The, The idea of manliness is being assaulted all over Machismo, oh, now now we don't want, we can't open the door for women anymore. You can't tell a woman she looks pretty anymore because you're sexist. You you got some kind of problem with women. And and listen, this is what God made you to do. God made you to protect. God made you to to recognize the qualities and the beauties of the the female uh, sex. And God made made you for that. Don't stop being that. Don't stop being that. It's disappearing in the church. I know this isn't very spiritual, but it's disappearing in the church. Church is full today of a bunch of emasculated, neutered, metrosexual, soft-serve men who have never worked a day in their lives. And they don't know what victory tastes like. Got a lot of preachers making excuses for sin because they've never walked in victory. Because they've sat in their ease and their laziness and looked at pornography on their computers. They don't have a message to come out and say, listen, you can walk victorious in Christ. But you're going to have to take up some weapons and win this fight. And, and some guys who can say, I know what it means to work. I know you're tired. I, it cracks me up. I'll see dad some Sunday nights and he'll be sitting there and I can tell he's tired. His eyes are heavy. You know why? Because he's working. He knows what it means to be a man. And that is important for us. Don't lose touch with your manliness, men. Young ladies, you need to find men who are manly. 
who are not afraid to be exactly what God called them to be. That's what you should be looking for. God can deal with the issues of being a little too haughty, a little too proud. God, can, God has a way of ironing all that stuff out. But where God has some issues is when men start acting like women. And when the dykish, authoritarian, out-of-order women are running the church because the men are cowering in the corner. It's not how God designed it. I don't care if it's popular. I know I'm singing to the choir around here. I know that we're all on the same page. But listen, I don't, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. Now, I'm not trying to beat women down. I believe we're, we're equal in God's eyes. We have, we have equal importance, but we do not have equal role. We are not made the same. Culture is pushing androgyny. You know what androgyny means? It means without sexual difference. It means everything is the same. Where boys dress like girls and girls now dress like boys. But listen, it's not just the homosexual LGBT community that's, that you see that in. All of the fashion stuff. Anybody else noticing that? All of the fashion stuff is turning the men to look soft and like women. And now all the women, all their stuff looks just a lot like men. Culture is pushing the lack of separation. But there's some things that you as women can do that I just can't do. God didn't intend me to do them. God doesn't want me to do them. And there's some things that I as a man can do that you cannot do. God doesn't want you to do them. He doesn't need you to do them. What we need to understand is God has given us roles. And if we operate in those roles, it's the exact same thing as the body of Christ. If everybody's a hand, then who's going to walk? If everybody's a foot, then who's going to see? Listen, our homes are not intended to be democracies. It's not how God made it. And I'm going to tell you what, we are facing some things. You all know it. It's coming down the pipeline. And it's going to take unified families. It's going to take husbands and wives who are working together to resist the assault that is coming at our homes. We need to embrace manhood. We need to embrace womanhood. We need to have definable differences. Men, don't be afraid to show your sons Goliath's armor on the wall and say, son, this is what it looks like to stare down danger. This is what it looks like to stand in the face of the one who's mocking your God. You see that right there? Everybody said there was nothing we could do. But I want you to look at the armor and I want you to look at his spear and I want you to understand it wasn't me. I didn't do it. All I had was a little sling. But God did it because I was willing to stand. It's okay to say that. It's okay to push that. I love the book of, of Hebrews in the 10th chapter and the 39th verse. You don't have to turn there, but quickly summing it up, it basically says, we are not of those who shrink back unto perdition. Cowering is the idea. We're not, the, we're not of those who start the race and then it gets really hot and smoky. You know, a lot of people smoke for a lot of years, Christian people, to get that nice, deep, raspy, smoky voice. All you have to do is live in Reading for a couple months in the summer. I got it tonight. I, mean, I can feel that nice baritone kind of coming in. We're not of those who shrink back. We're not of those who cower. We're not of those who are afraid of the smoke. We're not, we're not afraid of the blood. We're not afraid of the, of, the, of the spiritual war that we're in. And we've got to be ready for what is coming at us. We have to be prepared. And the, the verse that automatically jumps in my mind anytime I think about these things is Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, where it says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. We're supposed to be meek. We're supposed to be meek in the eyes of God. But if you're going to make it, you're going to force your way into it. 
You have to. It isn't just going to happen. We've got to take the word of God and we've got to resist the tide that is, that is so present in our country right now. It just feels like there is, there is an onslaught, an attack against all of our values. I'm looking around and I'm waiting for the big names. Now, I'm not waiting for them to tell me what to say. I'm waiting for the big name preachers, for one of them to stand up and say, no, we're not. But that's not happening. I'm sitting around and waiting for it, but it's not happening. Listen, I, I got a couple things we've got to fight against, and I won't be too long here, but I, I got to mention them. We've got to fight against the swell of the social justice gospel. Jesus had 12 apostles, 12 disciples. One of them was for social, social justice gospel. His name was Judas. See, when Mary came and poured out her offering on the Lord's feet, Judas stood up and said, Whoa, we could do a whole lot more with the poor in our community if we would have took that offering that was given to Jesus and we could have sold that and we could have fed the poor. We could have righted the wrongs. And Judas was full of the devil. The church is not supposed to be about social justice. Jesus never one time addressed it. Paul never said, hey, if you're slaves and you become Christians, you now get free. In fact, he said, listen, if you've been a slave, you better learn how to operate under your master so that he can see Christ in you. Obviously, we don't, we're not proponents of injustice or, or of slavery, of any of those things. But the idea that somehow that we as the Christian church have an obligation to right all the social wrongs in the world, that's not the function of the church. And I'm going to tell you the gospel truth. A lot of the wrongs, if not almost all of the wrongs, are the result of sin. And the greatest thing that we could do is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with such people free from their sin in order that they can walk uprightly and find rightness with God and rightness with man. We learned something in 10 years going to the park. You can give people money, you can give people food, and you can give people the gospel. And if they don't want to change, they're going to keep being the same way they are. And there is nothing that you can do about it. Not a single thing. You could give all your possessions to the poor and you can't fix the problem. Jesus ultimately said, you will always have the poor with you. Always. But I want you to be about the Father's business. Yeah, we're going to do what we can. And I think there's probably going to be some times, maybe, you know, coming, we don't know, that we might have to help one another out. It may get tough. We may see some, some hard financial times as a result of being a Christian. And you know what? We're going, to, we're going to buckle down and we're going to help each other out. But the gospel is of Christ. The gospel's not of justice. The gospel's of righteousness, peace, and joy. It's not of justice. You can't fix the injustices of other men. Listen, I was listening to a huge, like 2,500 person apostolic camp meeting this week. And their big name preacher gets up and probably 10 times in the message yells out, the answer is Pentecost. We've got to push back against this narrative. The answer for the church is not Pentecost. And, and as he was saying it, every single time, literally, Andre Crouch's song kept playing over in my mind. It was like an hour and 15 minute sermon. I listened to the whole thing. And every time he would say, Pentecost is the answer. I could feel the Spirit of the Lord say, no, Jesus is the answer. Every time. This, this blew me away. I had to share this with Dad. At the end of the service, he said, listen, there are people, and this is, I mean, it's at places in a frenzy. 
all this craziness happened. He says, listen, if you're here tonight, there's some young women here tonight who are struggling with lust. And so the, the, they start bowing their heads. He said, no, 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 no. We're not going to pray. Mm-mm. You're not going to pray. You're not going to repent. This isn't what. The, we're going to dance your way out of it. Now, I'm, that just struck me as unusual. You got a bunch of women struggling with lust, and you tell me you need to start dancing. That's the devil's gospel. If you're struggling with lust, you need to stop dancing. If you're struggling with lust, you need to stop speaking in tongues, which was being constantly encouraged in this service. And get on your face and repent of your sin. That's the answer to the problem. The answer's not Pentecost. No, we believe in Pentecost. I believe in speaking in tongues. We believe in the outpouring of the gifts of God in our church. We want to see that. But I I got a problem here tonight. The answer is Jesus. I got another problem. I got one more problem because this kept coming up. I knew it was going to come up. Acts 2.38 is not the answer for salvation. Jesus is the answer for salvation. I got a problem with our Baptist brothers. Romans 10.9 and 10 is not the answer for salvation. It's to take the whole word of God. Because when you look at that whole word of God, you're going to find it keeps screaming out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You're going to find salvation only in Jesus. You won't find it anywhere else. It's not in a formula. You're not going to find salvation because you got baptized here at Echoes of Calvary. You're not going to find salvation because you went down to an altar at some Baptist church and they told you, just say a few words and you're going to be saved. Oh, no. You're not going to find uh, salvation because you know a few scriptures about salvation. The Roman road won't save you. we got to push back. Listen, I'm not talking about fighting people. I'm not talking about getting in arguments with people. I'm talking about making sure that the bow I've got in my hand and the arrows that I'm shooting are the gospel arrows. That they are going to pierce the darkness with the light. I need to make sure that I am emphasizing that which is important and de-emphasizing that which is not important. So we've been looking for all of our ways to separate ourselves, all the denominations. This is that we can't fellowship because we've got this and, and they don't have this and we're right and they're wrong. Listen, we're not about being here, right here tonight at Echoes of Calvary. We're, we're not right. Let's just get it out of the way. We're not right. We're just following Jesus. We're just trying to find Jesus in what we're doing We're trying to bring him glory. I don't don't know more than anybody else knows. I don't think that what I'm preaching here tonight has got all truth in it. I'm just trying to find Jesus. But what we have to do is we've got to push back the narrative that is emphasizing things that have nothing to do with him. Our faith cannot be made up of single verses. I needed more amens right there. We have to push back against modern worship, which is about cool rhythms Clever lyrics. And we've got to redirect our worship in simple praise to our Lord. That's all God's interested in. Where we're very blessed. For the size of our church, we have great music and great singing. And I'm not saying we get a bunch of people who don't have a clue. Don't put me on the piano. You want Sister Debbie on the piano, not me. I'm I'm no good there. Say, well, I'm just going to give praise. I'm not saying we don't want to utilize the skills that God has given us, but it is in simple praise that Jesus is glorified. God's is glorified in the little Mexican church where I've been there. Dad said he was in it one time where they, they only had one string on the guitar, just one. One string on a six-string guitar, and that's what they were leading worship with. So God, ah, no. Too bad, I can't go by there today. That's, no, I'm going go to go to the really cool worship service. We've got to push back. How do we push back? By bringing praise to God. By refusing celebrity. Somebody comes along here and says, Here, Pastor Rodney, we want you. Now, this is a far stretch. But we want you guys. You, need to, you have to put out an album. 
Because you've got to get, no, no, uh-uh. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I don't want to do it. Because I want to make sure everything in this place is simple. Simple. That's what we're trying to do. Simplify your life. I think that's a good message. We're not preaching that one tonight. I, I'm almost finished. But let me remind you, as I'm closing here tonight, of, of a couple of things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. What we need to be about is we need to fight against those thoughts in our lives that are rejecting the knowledge of Christ. We need to be fighting against the thoughts around us that are preventing those around us from hearing the knowledge of Christ. We're not, like I said, we're not fighting people. Well, the Baptist across town, we need to go over there. And I'm going to tell him off, man. That guy's, he's sending people to hell. No, I'm not worried about the Baptist across town. I'm not worried about the individuals. We just need to make sure that we are fighting. If we're going to fight, we've got to fight with the right weapons. Not carnal weapons. Not bad attitudes and calling names. That's not the right weapons. But the Word of God. Spoken in the love in which God wants to draw men unto Him with. Again, not in the I'm correct and you're all wrong. I'm going to argue with you because everything you've got is wrong and what I've got is no, no, no. That's not going to help anything. But I'm not saying we cower. I just talked about preaching or fighting. But what I am saying tonight is that what we battle with, what we use to fight with is the word of God. And we proclaim the truth of God's word and let it sit where it sits. People are offended, so be it. Well, I don't like your method. Well, there's a lot of churches, maybe you'll like their method. I don't really know what to say. You can argue over all of those things. But we can emphasize, if we're not careful, this fleshly manliness and not realize that there has to be a spiritual manliness that has to happen in our lives. And we can emphasize the beauty of the... I mean, I'm, all of us men, we're not made to be pretty. I'm just telling you. I know I burst a couple guys' bubbles there. You're not made to be pretty. The women were made to be pretty. The glory of man, that's what God said. The beauty of your life is going to be your wife, all you young men. And all you men who are married better say amen right there. And we can get all bent out of shape. I want to read one more verse. It's in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just want to, want to visit this really quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, I think it's 26. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Now, you won't get a, probably a much stronger group of Second Amendment believers in this you know, in this world than we have in our church. But we can get all bent out of shape about our natural rights and we're fighting the wrong battle if we do. I'm not saying don't, don't vote. I'm, I think you should. I'm not saying don't be political. I think you should. But we need to understand the front on which we're fighting. The front on which we're fighting is not out here. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it's not eat and drink. That's not the kingdom of heaven. What we need to be advancing before we advance anything else is we need to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be careful that in our thirst to push back, that we're not just pushing back in the face of government because we don't like what government's doing. We need to push back against government, which says murdering babies is good. You understand what I'm saying? We need to push back and say, I don't care what you say about homosexual rights. 
we're not having homosexual pastors because it's wrong biblically. Not because we're Americans and you can't do that to us. Everybody following what I'm saying? We need to make sure that our, our desire to fight is that we would fight the good fight of faith. Not the good fight of being an American. And I love being an American. I'm, like Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American. Where at least we once were free. So listen, you might have some guns displayed. You might have some armor on your wall. You might have Goliath's spear there saying, hey, this is some battles I've won. These are some things I've fought. But you need to make sure that you've got the whole armor of God on display in your home. Ephesians chapter 6, and we won't cover all of those things, but it talks about the truth that needs to be on display in your home. It talks about the righteousness. This is all the armor of God, the truth, the righteousness, the peace. Not because we're fighting man. We're going to have peace because we're winning over the devil. That's where peace is going to come. Faith needs to be on display. Salvation needs to be on display. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, needs to be on display in your life. It needs to be on display in your home. We will get in trouble if we've got Goliath's armor on our wall, but we don't have God's armor on our wall. When we begin to think, that what we accomplished at some point in our past and something we did and some victory we won and we think we've got it all figured out, we're going to find out we're losing to a different giant because the armor of God is there. The armor of Goliath is there to remind us of what God's done. The armor of God is there so that we can advance his kingdom and defend our houses against the onslaught of the wicked one. So if you're going to have Goliath's armor on your wall, you better have God's armor in your house too. Or you're going to fail. Lord, I ask you tonight. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know this is a whole group of people that probably believes everything that I just said. But I felt so encouraged by your word that you're a warrior. God, that you haven't lost. And that you're making us to fight the good fight of faith. And I pray that your word would be established in our hearts. Cause us to grow by it and make us into the people you want us to be. And we will give you all the glory and everybody say amen tonight.